Welcome everybody to Spark My Muse. My guest is a returning one, Ed Szeszki. Thank you so much, Ed, for being on my show today. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm happy to have you back on to share your book, Reconnect, Spiritual Restoration for Digital Distraction. I really like this book so much because it talks a lot about spiritual formation in my mind of how do we navigate this digital world that has encroached so much in our lives, but is very useful. However, it's built to be addicting and it can very soon damage our relationships or distract us from living a fuller, more abundant life. So one of the questions I was hoping to kind of kick off with was about how the book was conceived, because at the time you conceived it and started researching it and writing it, we didn't have something called COVID-19 and a worldwide pandemic that would have people locked down in their homes. And I imagine (laughs) using digital things a lot more. So people hadn't encountered Zoom or FaceTiming their relatives all the time or working from home or going to church online. And so what have you noticed since you began the journey of the book and then we all encountered this crazy virus thing and then people's digital habits probably shifted too? Right. I mean, that's one of the most common things that I hear from people who have reviewed the book or read the early copies is just how timely it feels for them. And it's, I mean, it's a tricky balance because I think that we're at a time where we're really depending on our digital connections a lot. So it's a, it's a tight, tight line to kind of walk. But to go back to your question about, you know, where this book is coming from and why I wrote it, it, there were a series of catalysts that really kind of drove me to do it. The first was just my own parenting, seeing how I turned to Facebook, especially in times of stress, like it became almost a, uh, a stress reaction, a habit where if I was worn out or tired, that would kind of become one of the first places I turned. And it, it wasn't restorative. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't helping me be a better parent. It wasn't helping me grow or, or relieve any stress or care for my soul. It was just a distraction for the most part. And, and oftentimes it's, you know, things like Twitter especially can make our anxiety worse because then we start to see all the news and the reactions to the news. So it didn't, it didn't help me in a lot of ways that I was hoping it would help me. And then over the years, there was the, the election in 2016 and just the, the stress of being on social media and seeing how people responded to that. And then just my own desire to explore prayer. And that's really, I mean, if, if I look at Reconnect, my other book, Flee, Be Silent, Pray, which I believe was on a previous episode of Spark My News, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, the, the, the central question in, those, in both these books is what keeps us from praying? You know, whether that's this anxiety and fear of God that I talk about in Flee, Be Silent, Pray, or if it's, you know, our phone that's in our pocket or social media that, that sucks up our attention and time and, and almost Mm-hmm. feeds or creates helps us create a false self you know those are both mm-hmm. barriers to prayer right that i do see that connection between the two books and i hadn't thought how much they are connected i know when i go online it might be for different reasons because i'm more extroverted than you and i go on to have a sense of connection to other people which is maybe why you go on too sometimes just to kind of reach out uh, because I'm at home all the time with writing and podcasting, interviewing and stuff. And I think I said this in the podcast that you're doing now. When I was a guest, Paths to Restoration, is is that what you're settled on for calling your podcast? Is it Paths to Restoration? (laughs) And uh, yeah, and I'm recommending people go check that out. I'll leave a link in the show notes for this episode. And I was mentioning how it's really a surrogate for connection online for me because I've noticed I don't get the same sense of, I don't know if fulfillment is the word, but it's, it's sort of an attempt at connection because there isn't something there to do it. And I feel an emptiness. It's not out of an overflow of love (laughs) that I'm going and reaching out to people sometimes. It's sometimes because Maybe my connection with God isn't where it should be, but I should be reaching out to God first, perhaps, and I'm just going on there addictively to 
I hope I can feel friendship. And it's interesting, we all maybe go on for different reasons. But one of the first things in your book talks about the studies, the data, the experts, and the information that talk about how companies spend millions, even maybe billions of dollars to make their products and services and apps more addictive. And they use the technology purposefully to manipulate us and psychologically sort of toy with our emotions to get us in certain states. And I was wondering if you could speak a little to that, because I know that people realize they have an addiction in some regard, but I don't know if everybody realizes how purposefully manipulative companies are. And when you really sense that in your book, it really gives you pause of, oh, how much do I want to be a pawn in this, in this money-making scheme? Right. Yeah. I, I wrote a guest post for uh, Andy Combo Floyd. It's uh, andylit.com. And I wrote about, this is a little bit more on the creativity side of things, but I, on my guest post, I wrote about these, um, these technology skeptics or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's about Tristan mm. who, um, who's afraid that there's a supercomputer behind YouTube that makes the videos really addicting. And then there's, you know, Linda, who's worried about the way that the notification button on Facebook is so addicting. And then there's Steve who won't let his kids use an iPad at home. And, you know, because he thinks it's really mm-hmm. bad for their development. And then it's at the end, you know, later on in the post, I say, by the way, like that Steve is Steve Jobs who wouldn't let his kids use an iPad. Right. That Tristan, you know, is the guy yeah, who wow. was at YouTube who helped, you know, work on this supercomputer that's, you know, go through all these algorithms to predict uh, what kind of video you want to watch mm-hmm. next. And it's auto-playing. So you just keep watching and watching. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he says that the supercomputer is, you know, they go through all these algorithms and they won't win every time, but they're going to win a lot of the time. And the other person is, you know, this, I, I think your name's Linda. I, I could be getting the name wrong, but, you know, Linda talks about how they, they use this red notification button that she helped design on Facebook to give you the feedback. And mm-hmm. that feedback is so addicting. And it's, you know, one technology addiction expert who runs these camps out in the woods to help kids get over their technology addictions talks about the connection we get on mm. technology. A lot of times can almost be like candy where, you know, you post something on Facebook and you get all these little likes, right? It feels really good. It's a little short burst of affirmation. And that mm-hmm. that's a good thing. And there's a good desire behind it, but it's being exploited where maybe we're just we're relying too much on that. And that's what Sherry Turkle talks about. She's a psychologist and technology expert at MIT who studied this extensively for a long time. And she was doing studies in 2010 on the negative impact of technology and social media. And, and you know, she writes about how our problem with technology is we expect it to do too much. And so while we're you know, quarantined or at least social distancing or not seeing our friends as often or not in the same ways, you know, by all means, use social media and technology to connect with people. We've been using FaceTime for years to, to do video calls with our family and with our kids, with their grandparents, but we shouldn't expect those things to do more than they're designed to do. And we shouldn't be surprised that the tools and technology that has been designed to capture our attention and our eyeballs, you know, has some really good features in them, but there's also some really negative things baked in that are, that are, you know, they're features. It's not a bug. Like they're designed to make you want to be on there longer Mm. because it's all part of this attention economy where the person who has the most attention makes the most money through advertising. Right. There's a profit motive. It's not, these companies are not into charity work, helping us get better. They're into profits. (laughs) And I think we might get something out of their services, but there's a reason that Facebook is free and uh, it's to get our attention and get us hooked. Right. Right. The one particularly troubling thing I read in your book is that creepy, um, citation, I think from an article, is that Facebook was tracking, or it might have been Facebook, it was tracking teens who feel worthless and then targeting them yep. for ads and trying to sell them stuff. There, there is pretty much nothing creepier. First, you have this whole generation of kids who are have been tracked as like mental health among older children and 
adolescents, young adults has never been worse. And that is directly correlated to the advent of the smartphone. And then you have companies tracking their feelings of worthlessness to target them for ads and products. And it's, it's so, I'm wondering one day if we'll look back and obviously it's unethical, but will there be laws maybe put in place one day that it's like, no, we can't, we can't manipulate people's minds in this. It's like a brainwashing. Um, When, they're trying to sell to us when they've manipulated our minds and sell to us when we're angry or sad. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's a huge issue. And, and, you know, one of the things about social media is that the people who founded these companies did so under this uh, cover of, you know, it's, it's free speech, it's free expression. It's, you know, we, you know, we're creating this, you know, forum where, you know, every, everyone's going to flourish and, you know, the best will rise to the top. And, and, you know, yes, like we believe in free speech, but then that's kind of being used as a cover for this manipulation and for, you know, bad actors to come in and, and misuse the platforms. And, you know, the companies just kind of shrug and say, oh, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're for free, free speech and free expressions. People are just going to do what they want. And so that's, that's a major problem. And that's something that um, I'm going to say the name wrong, but I think it's Ellen Pao or Powell of Reddit. She writes about how there's this homogenous white male, young white male privileged culture, you know, at the founding of these companies where, you know, they just didn't imagine or they, they either didn't think or they didn't want to think about how these services could be misused. And then once you mm. start going down this rabbit hole where everything is just wide open and they're not thinking about the consequences, it, it creates a mess and who's mm. responsible for the mess. And, you know, you can only hide behind free speech and other, you know, principles for so long when you're, you know, you're manipulating teens and making, you know, Teens are suicidal because of these platforms. You know, there, there needs to be more of a robust discussion about that. From the data that you were reading about, do you think, is there anything being done about the crisis? Because if there was, it just seems like if there was another, because it's almost like because it's technology, it's sort of like this protected right. <laughs> group or something. But if if other things were coming in, if if like someone was producing foods that would make that many people that mentally unhealthy, it, there might be like hearings in Congress or something, but there's so many, it's, it's a kind of crisis that many people being mentally unwell. And it can even speak to my daughter is 17 and she has, you know, friends her age. And there are a number of them who spend an ungodly amount of time online. And my daughter doesn't spend a little bit of time online. She spends a good bit of time and they are um, not, they don't want to go out. They have phobias. There's a, a large number of them, I'd say, have surprising issues that I think would surprise people that are nothing like issues that, that were there 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Do you think there's anything being done about that? I mean, so first of all, there have been comparisons actually made to like social media and the food industry as far as just unhealthy food and unhealthy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Some people yeah. have made those connections. So, <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, uh-huh. you know, where there's money, I mean, and profit and it's, right. you can hide behind free speech, free expression. So, it gets really complicated really quick and there's, there's nuances to all this. So, um, you know, accountability is, is tough. And I mean, that's, you know, one of the things that Tristan Harris talks about after leaving Google was that, you know, he tried to create more humane technology. He actually found this, you know, humane technology uh, organization because he found that there was just no incentive for humane design when there is a profit attached mm. to it. Like why, why would someone mm. at Google make oh. YouTube less addicting? Why would they make the videos, mm. you know, uh, less appealing to people or, or why would they disable autoplay? There's no incentive. 
And so there, I mean, there are some changes being made. Like Apple has added more screen time and tracking features and you can, you can go to the, you know, the privacy settings and limit the things that you see and, and you can set up reminders at certain times of, you know, for when you want to be off your phone, there are lots of apps and different um, add-ons to browsers you can, you can use. And so, you know, there, there are people taking action there. There are discussions about more accountability for social media, you know, within the government. But I mean, right now we, we still have Facebook running ads that are, you know, disinformation that are inflaming hatred and racism. And, and if, if we were following international events, we would know that Facebook was used for genocide in other countries around the world, you know, and, and groups and ads. Wow. And, and that's the thing. It's that you could just show an out of context video or an out of context piece of news and use confirmation bias and emotionally charged language and, mm. you know, existing racial bias, and you can really do a lot of damage mm -hmm. really quickly with these tools. And the companies don't want to get involved in regulating these things. I guess it's so powerful that it would be in a government's best interest to cooperate with Facebook to do what they would want, or to use Facebook as a tool themselves or for other profitable entities to you know, to buy ads or to skew information. And uh, one of the things I heard going around on the, on the internet too, is that there is, because of our consumption, the way we consume digital information, it's kind of when something's in print, oh, it's in print, it must be true. You know, right. oh, it's been published on online, it must be true. And there's very little uh, that goes into very little thought or research or any research that goes into just sharing something. Right. No one's yeah. gonna, yeah, look it up anywhere in a, in a real re, in real research. They're gonna, oh well, somebody I trust said that, so I trust them, so I'll I'll share it. And it doesn't mean that it's true. It just it just means that it they trust the person who said it. Right. But that person trusted somebody else, and it ends up that rumors and and myths and all kinds of nonsense gets propagated, even by well intended people. It's just that gossip cloud of, right. of craziness and sometimes manipulated, purposefully manipulated. Right. Um, I actually have a perfect example of this. So in I live in Kentucky and we've had a uh, primary election. Okay. So I've been following the local news and the Democratic governor and the Republican attorney general have been trying to figure out how are we going to have safe elections with the coronavirus. And one of the big concerns is they didn't have enough poll workers. And so they were trying to figure out how can we, you know, consolidate polling places so we have enough polling workers, uh, but how can we also make sure people have enough, you know, opportunities to vote? So they instituted in-person early voting. They instituted uh, no excuse required absentee ballots. And Kentucky is a state that has had a history of voter suppression with different voter ID laws, and they haven't had early voting, they haven't had, you know, widely available mail-in ballots. So, you know, this, in, in a sense, this was like righting a lot of wrongs from the past. They were, you know, basically taking steps that have now led to increased turnout compared to previous elections. And, you know, the one challenge, though, was that for the actual election day, uh, because they couldn't find enough workers to staff the polls safely and they had to find centralized locations that were accessible to people but if you just shared that number that kentucky went from 2,000 polling places to 60 and then if you share that number that louisville went from i don't know how many hundreds of polling places to one on the county fairgrounds you would say that's voter suppression but the reality is that you know there are more people voting than ever before uh, in a primary election, or at least in recent memory. And yet, you know, Hillary Clinton, LeBron James, they were sharing that this is voter suppression. Some, some, some big name actress with like millions of followers I don't know about because I don't know anything about movies, right. but some big name actress shared, you know, this is voter suppression. Following the local news, and I thought to myself, this, this doesn't seem right. And so I started looking at some of the local reporters mm -hmm. for the Lexington Herald, and, and they were just, you know, putting up all kinds of, uh, hmm. you know, annoyed emojis and, and gifts and things like that, you know, just because 
yeah. you know, it, it missed the story. It missed. And, and so, yes, it's not good that we didn't have enough polling locate. We didn't have more polling locations in a city like Louisville, where maybe people really needed to be able to walk or do public transit within an easy distance to a polling location. But, you know, these these tweets miss, you know, with just sharing the, the raw numbers miss the wider narrative that a Republican attorney general and a Democratic governor worked together to increase early voting and mail-in ballots and got really, really high voter participation. And the head of the NAACP in Louisville, although concerned about what happened, didn't believe that it would result in voter suppression. So, you know, people freak out on social media about these numbers. Right, right. Well, and, and understandably, you see a number like that, and it's going to be hard to like say, is that fair? Or, you know, that must be fair. It, but did one person check local news? Did anybody check local news before they shared that and their irritation or their their outrage? Right. You know, probably not because you're meant to quickly retweet yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. or quickly retweet with a comment of, of outrage. And that's part of how it works. And it's an outrage machine. Twitter's an outrage machine, basically. And and it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It, it's meant to perpetuate outrage. So yeah, I, that's a really good example of there. there's truth. The numbers were true, but the story was missed. Right. And, and it's these kind of things where we're living in an advanced age where it's possible to know a lot. It's possible to be connected to a lot of people and to get better information, but we don't have the time. We don't have the time for it. We don't want to bother to do it. And right. and that brings me to to some of the spiritual formation stuff because a lot of what your book is about is not letting, I guess, the uh, the worst parts of technology. It's not saying don't use technology or don't use digital things, but it's like how do we keep it in a, in a proper perspective and keep it in, in proper use while at the same time, you know, it shouldn't make us more anxious. It shouldn't make us more outraged. It shouldn't hurt our relationships. And so that brings me to want to ask you, what are some of the things you do to not lose sight of that in your own life? What are the habits you have? Right. Yeah. I'm glad you used the word habits because that really is key. And it's, it's a little ironic because the people who got us into this mess with social media in part, were psychologists who were experts in habit formation and who influenced these designers and engineers to make their products habit-forming and addictive. And so, ironically, one of the ways out of it is to think about more positive habit formation, that we we aren't just like, you know, gritting our teeth and white-knuckling as we try to not use our phone. It's that we, we think about what can I replace this with that's better for my soul and better for the people around me and will make me a more loving, caring, compassionate person who can who can do good, who can serve others, and who can be aware of the needs of others and who isn't just reacting to what I find on my screen. So there's a couple of ideas I have in the book as far as practices that I found helpful. But for a lot of folks, maybe like a place to start is like two simple questions, like how do you start your day and how do you end your day? Now, for a lot of people today, they start your day by checking their phone. And a lot of people also right, end right. their day on their phone. So, you know, Andy Crouch in his TechWise family book recommends that like the phone, you know, the phone sleeps somewhere else, not in your bedroom. Um, you know, either like across the room or something like that, like just, you know, make it a habit to keep your phone away from your bed, if not in a different room. And think about how you can start your day and end your day differently and try to make it a little bit enjoyable. Even you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all austerity, right? It, it, it could be, you know, for me, what I really like is I think about, I'm going to make coffee and then I'm going to have some silence or I'm going to go for a run and just give myself some space for my brain to either recenter or refocus or, or do some centering prayer or to do the divine hours reading for the morning. Think about a way to, you know, to trigger some kind of a healthy practice to start your day. 
And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. Like, you know, start small, like habits can start really small and grow. Like, you know, I, I didn't uh, train myself to run by like running a 30 minute run right away. I, I would run for a couple of minutes and then I'd walk and I'd run a couple of minutes and I'd walk and I would maybe only last maybe 10 or 15 minutes, you know, and then you, you kind of build up. And so I think prayer can be like that too, where it's just, I can handle two or three minutes of silence if, when I wake up, like that would be great. Sit on the couch, drink some coffee or sit in a, at, at your table, at a chair, give yourself a prompt and a simple way to start your day with an awareness of God and awareness of, of where your soul is at. By the same token, how can you end your day? Is there a spiritual book that you could read? So yeah, next next April, like there'll be a really good book coming out, you know, by Lisa Delay. So, you know, pick up that book and and read a chapter before or read a couple pages before bed. So, uh, you know, think about and, you know, so like, don't, I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up because we have a hard time incorporating a healthy habit and we feel really bad about our bad habits. And I think we need to really think about, okay, um, I'm having a hard time you know, reading a spiritual formation book before bed. Maybe it's really boring. Like maybe it's a bad book. Mm-hmm. Like maybe it's not really written very well. So, mm-hmm. you know, get some Henry Nowen books, mm-hmm. you know, spend a little bit of money. Like, you know, just, I, I think we need to get rid of some of the guilt and to mm-hmm. experiment say, okay, you know, these spiritual formation books don't really speak to me. What, what would speak to me? And so that's, that's kind of how I, yeah. I try to encourage folks to replace an unhealthy habit with a, a healthy habit. You sparked an idea in me to, to think about that we need a little bit of a paradigm shift to realize that even though our phone is with us all the time as a constant companion, it's an unnatural one. And that the more things we can do in the morning and in the evening, like you say, before bed, that get back to our natural selves, even just remembering, oh, yeah, I breathe. I should just let me just think about my breathing for a minute or let me think about breathing calmly or just having a nice conversation or a few moments to think what I'm grateful for, or just kind of getting, uh, whether it's taking a shower or feeling your, you know, a little, a little exercising, a little stretching, uh, just feel your body again. Because I know for myself, as I'm doing digital things, I'll have perhaps like a bad posture because I'm just stuck in this other world and in my head. And I'll forget I'm attached to a body, an actual natural body. So sometimes for me, I will go just walk around my yard for a few minutes in the morning or the evening, similar to what you do, without the help of my digital device that kind of takes away my humanity. It is like a foreign object that kind of will dehumanize us. And I think that that's kind of part of the problem, what technology has so done so subtly is become that thing that you need all the time. It's like my precious, my precious, you know, it's like I must, <laughs> it's the ring that will control all other, you know, so you, yep. you wake up, where's my precious? Right? It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I have this uh, like words with friends and I'll get a coin. If I touch the thing every day, I get a coin and Oh, I, what time is it? I can't know unless my phone tells me I don't have clocks anymore. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's those things to kind of, disengage from the precious and um, have living things be precious. I have this amazing large tree outside my house. It is the largest living thing, you know, pretty close by. And I'm like, I have a huge, large living thing right here. Why don't I think this is amazing? You know, and I'm trying to think more like that. Like, what are things that are actually amazing? Mm. One of the things about technology, you're absolutely right, is that it's it's disembodied. The philosopher Jacques Ellul was a Christian and a philosopher who, who wrote a lot about technology. We don't know a ton about him because he wrote fairly dense books that were very academic. And uh, while he did a lot of really significant work, he was very locally focused. People credit him with the expression, think globally, act locally. Uh, they credit him with that. And so he was so locally focused, helping people in his community that He's maybe not as well known internationally, but he talked about how uh, technology demands greater efficiency. Your means is to become more efficient. To Technology is just demanding and it turns everything into a machine. And so I think you're absolutely right to talk about how we need to think about our embodiment in our bodies and how God incarnated you know, in, in Jesus, that God was incarnate in Jesus and that 
yeah. our spirituality should be incarnate as well. That you can use a phone to help you get a reminder to pray or to get prayers or to read the Bible or to do spiritual practices. But at the end of the, of the day, you know, spiritual formation is going to take place whether or not we're present for God. And that presence is in our bodies and, and how quickly our disembodied time can turn into the false self where social media almost becomes this like, uh, this digital embodiment of the false self. Like we can create this mm. false self online and avoid mm. our true self and not see our true self in God because we're so disconnected from our, mm. our real selves in God. Yeah, that's such a great point. I'm thinking also that maybe you've caught yourself doing this too, but we'll start treating people like they're part of almost like an extension of our phone or our, our dashboard life too. It's like we get impatient. Like, Why won't people do something? I, I can control everything on this phone and now people have become very irritating. Right. We get more impatient with people because we get everything we want immediately. And then somebody dares be human in our presence, right. <laughs> makes a mistake or makes us wait. And it's like, how dare you not be as wonderful and efficient as my phone? And it's really interesting because in the process of becoming dehumanized, our relationships kind of go there too. So, so we would rather talk to somebody we've never met for exactly the amount of time we want to until they become annoying when we can just leave right. <laughs> the conversation. They talk to an actual person in the room or a neighbor, and the second they become annoying, we're like, oh, I hate people. <laughs> it's just right. really interesting. Because yeah. I, I believe that it it trains us to be consumers, but you have ceased to amuse me person in real life. I'm going back to my phone where people really love me. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yep. Relationships can in real life can erode because we've begun to think sort of like consumers and our dashboard life. People should be how I want them to be and please me. Kind of mentality. It's, it sneaks in. I don't know that we're doing it on purpose, but it goes unchallenged and unquestioned. I think this is why, you know, when my kids have been on their phones or my son watches videos because he has a YouTube channel, my daughter will be on Instagram or whatever else. And then I'll ask him to do something and they'll look at me like, are you kidding me? How dare right. you just make a request? <laughs> it's just like the, the, the strangest thing someone has done. I don't, I don't think... Um, you live here, <laughs> I'm the mom, and this is actually not weird at all. <laughs> right. It's, it's really interesting how a, a mind frame will sort of shift. And, and that's another, I think, another part of a, a dehumanizing is that how we relate to each other becomes sort of mechanized. Right. And that's actually funny that you say mechanized because Sherry Turkle, when she was studying teens and smartphones, she found that many of them are very, very likely to uh, disengage from an in-person conversation in order to check their phones. Mm. Um, and yeah. what you know, one of the ways it's been explained is that it's a little bit like a slot machine, right? Where there's a possibility yeah. of something really cool and exciting could be coming. And that excitement of something else, something new and novel and unexpected, even if, even if it's worse than what you could be getting from the person in front of you, it's that gamification of, oh, wow, but like something really cool could happen if I check my phone right now. Um, and they've done studies right. where if you have your phone out, you're not as focused mm -hmm. with your work. If you have your phone out while you're eating dinner right. with a significant other, you won't enjoy your meal as much because you're wondering in the back of your mind, I wonder what that <laughs> right. phone's going to have for me. And BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed has a, uh, a video series that I found on Netflix. And they had a, one of their reporters was studying smartphones and how they work and manipulate us and things like that. It's, it's a great little 20-minute introduction to like smartphones, how they work, and the, the game of smartphones. And he actually went to a researcher's mm. office. And what she had him do was put his phone behind himself on a stool. It was like five feet away, but he couldn't mm -hmm. look at it. He couldn't touch it. 
and he had to do work. <laughs> he had a computer there at, at this you know, researcher's office, and he was just working on an article. And she she had all him hooked up to all kinds of you know scanners and different things to track his pulse and his brain waves and everything, his heartbeat, heart rate. And she said, I'm going to send you text messages, but you can't answer them. <laughs> oh, no. So he knew the researcher <laughs> was sending him text messages. And so she started sending the text messages, and the little pings are going off in his phone, and the phone's mm-hmm. ringing. And he said he had a really hard time focusing on his work. Mm-hmm. His heart rate went up. You know, his everything, like, spiked. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I need to answer that. I need to find out like what's <laughs> right. on my phone. He knew it was a researcher, but there is still something, you know, about that mm-hmm. phone that's trained him to yeah. create that slot machine effect of something really cool could be waiting for me, even though 99% of the time, it probably won't be any better than what he's got, you know, in front of himself that, you know, it could be really satisfying to complete his work, but that reward is, is more of a long-term benefit. It's not the same as that little slot machine dopamine tip. Yeah, it was interesting about that whole idea of unitasking, not multitasking, but unitasking and diving deep into the thing that you're doing and shutting everything else out. And you know, Cal Newport talks about this too. He's really into that, and right. you know, he's the the millennial who doesn't have a. I don't. He might not even have an email for all I know, but I know he doesn't have any socials, and. You know, if it was a different setup, if it was a little toddler going, mommy, mommy, or daddy, 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 you'd be like, I can't work like this. Right. <laughs> How am I supposed to get anything done? <laughs> That's my life right now. But if it's your phone, it's like, well, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so we all know that that's like impossible circumstances get real work done, right? But if it's your phone, it's like, well, it is a phone. It could be something important. Right. It really is funny how reframed suddenly, you know, it's like, well, I better check my email. I was kind of waiting for something. It's wild. Obviously, constant distraction. We all know that's bad, but we'll let it take over. We'll we'll let it boss us around. (laughs) We should be making all kinds of efforts, really, to make sure we have our own time to work, even even if it's just like 30 straight minutes with absolutely no distractions, if possible. People in our families or something, it's, it's different if someone needs to drink water or something. But but if the ones that we can stop. Oh, yeah. I just have these conversations even within our, our families. And when we have obligations, such as if you have kids, to talk with your spouse about, Hey, like I, I need 20 minutes. I say to my wife, I need my like time in a dark room right now just to like (laughs) recover (laughs) from something really busy or whatever. And and so, uh, you know, I need to take a walk, talk about what we need for soul care. And there are times when I'll be talking to my wife about how I'm feeling kind of stressed out or whatever. And she'll say to me, well, do you need to like go for a run? Do you need to take a walk? Do you need a little bit of time on the sun porch? If we start to have these conversations with each other, we can help care for each other as well and and be aware of maybe like what we need to to actually reconnect with God, to be more present for other people rather than just turning to our phones as that easy distraction. Yeah. Well, you have kids. How old are your kids and what sort of things have you have you um, done for for boundaries for them or what things do you have in mind for them? Right. Yeah. So I have two boys who are seven and five. They're, they have birthdays coming up in about um, a month. So um, they'll be mm-hmm. eight and six soon. And then I have a, a two-year-old daughter uh, who she's mm-hmm. kind of the little battery that, you know, drains, <laughs> drains me right now. She's, you know, wonderful and exhausting Constant. at the same time. Yeah. She is a ball of energy. Mm-hmm. And so yes, we we are we don't have a television. We we haven't owned a television um, in our eighteen years of marriage, and we really do try to keep an eye on their their screen time. If if they watch a TV show, it's like you know maybe every other day or something like that. It's not like an everyday thing, and it's you know maybe forty minutes 
of a show. Uh, yeah, we we really limit their use of like iPads, things like that. Like they don't they don't play games, no games on iPads. Um, you know, I, I joined the movement. It's like wait until eighth or something like that. It's like no phones until eighth grade, and if they do get a phone, it'll be a flip phone or some kind of a you know dumb phone or not smartphone. Um, and I, I think that I'm hoping that as they get older, those those phones will become more sophisticated because they do have quote unquote dumb phones now that will have things like maps and maps calling, you know, text messaging, you know, kind of the basic things they need to get by as a, as a tween. We we haven't really made like a plan yet, but uh, that's that's extremely concrete, but. We've already had conversations with them about how video games manipulate kids, how uh, social media and smartphones are designed to be addicting, and how they change people and how they make people feel sad. Like we've we've already started to have these conversations with them, so that they understand, you know, what's going on, and and I'm hoping we can model that too. That we kind of keep the phones in a little charging area, you know, in the kitchen and. We don't use the phones at the table. You know, we're, we're trying to model good habits for them because we can't like keep them from having a phone. But I want to hopefully empower them. That's and that's really what this book is all about. It's empowering people to make better decisions about you know their mental health and about their spiritual formation and and to just have more control and not be at the mercy of these social media companies. And so that's really how I'm trying to introduce this stuff to my kids as well, is to say this stuff can be useful, but it can be really harmful for your mental health. So let's talk about how to use it well. Mm. That's awesome. Well, Ed, for anybody who doesn't know, um, share your website and where people can find you and how to get on your newsletter. Yeah, so the website is edsuzeski.com so it's ed e-d-c-y-z-e-w-s-k-i.com and that the uh, newsletter link should be right there on the home page if you go to my blog the newsletter link is in the top right corner so easy to get on the newsletter it's got a sample of flee be silent pray in there if you go to edsuzeski.com slash reconnect you can also get a, a sample chapter of Reconnect. I've got a, a 5,000 word uh, discussion guide that takes different uh, quotes from the book and offers some uh, discussion and talking points for groups. If you're doing a, a Zoom small group <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I'm on, I'm on all the social media sites, but I block them for like nine hour stretches at a time. So, if you try to message me on them, like, and you don't hear back, that's probably why. But I am on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, we can get a hold of you by Carrier Pigeon by Pony Express. Yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> well, if you just go in the middle of my town and shout Ed, Ed, you know, you might get lucky. Ed Szeski, we need to talk about your book. <laughs> well, this is this. <laughs> He'd be like, I'm on a run. Would you please? <laughs> well, <laughs> I am busy. Well, um, <laughs> this has really been fun. And uh, you always you always really come out with, even though this is about digital stuff, I really feel like this is evergreen. Like, I think you could pick this book up in five years. It'll still be, still be relevant because digital things – have been a part of our lives for, since I think we've had computers as personal computers, basically. We still have to, yeah. back in the email days, this would have still been, if you went back in time and had this book, it would have still made sense because people were checking yeah. their emails. I know I was like a, like an addict <laughs> and um, it's not like right. there's oh, no yeah. way stuff's oh, going to yeah. get less addicting because there's a profit to be had. So we have to, stick to our uh, plans and, and our habits and teach our kids young about, I think 
just call them dangers. I, it's like having a, you know, like a live fire in your house. You can maybe cook by it and maybe get warm by it, but you're going to get hurt from it if you're not treating it in a very specific certain way. So I think that um, it's interesting how you can occasionally write a book about something that's very current, but also is very evergreen. So I think that's really helpful. Um, so is there any, any final things you want to say before we wrap it up? Yeah. So I'm going to give your listeners the, the like one minute summary of this book. And that if you did these three things, you would basically not need to read my book. I still hope you do. But I actually had I actually had to uh, add I had a little bit of a like a back and forth. It was it was pleasant, but I had a back and forth with my editor, who mm-hmm. said that I shouldn't have this in the book because it would give away too much. Hmm. And I said, no, it needs to be in there because it, this is going to help people. So hmm. um, I hope you will buy, reconnect, and read it. But if not, if this is all that you interact with this book, I, I hope that you will take this little mantra to, to reconnect. And it's a little bit like Michael Pollan's uh, mantra for like good eating. But my mantra to reconnect is protect your time, prioritize one-on-one interactions, and that could be that could be digital or in person. It's one on one is the key. Mm-hmm. Restore your spirit with daily silence. So mm-hmm. protect your time. Prioritize one on one interactions, and restore your spirit with daily silence. Mm-hmm. And you know, honestly, I keep those three things in mind mm-hmm. each day. That you know, am I am I restoring myself with silence? Am I mm-hmm. making one on one interactions? Am I aware of how I'm using my time. And, and those three things just help me make better choices each day and help me mm-hmm. evaluate how I'm doing. Yeah, I think that's an excellent recipe for not feeling lonely and alienated, alienated as you're using digital things too, because I've, I've noticed that the same things, like on the days when I've done that, just either by following things from your book or just kind of maybe by accident or instinctually following them because I'm a contemplative. Exactly. That's the case. That's a, that's a good recipe for having a healthier spiritual life, spiritual meaning everything, but a healthier spiritual life, but people should buy the book. I don't care what you say. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care about your mantra. Buy the book people. (laughs) Everything you said was true, but uh, it would be really sad if people didn't buy the book because there's so much in there. But um, but yeah, you're you're so right. Is that those three those three things are are really really key. If you're using if you're planning to use digital, if you don't do those things, you really are in a hole because there's something yeah. about the one on one that really makes a huge difference. If you're just shouting into the void your complaints, you end up so much more miserable. Yeah. And, and you're at the end, you're like, why, why did I just waste two hours of my time? I feel like so alone or so like, did that help me? I, why did I do that? <laughs> so those, right. those are really, how did you come up with it? Did you read that? Did you just, did that just come out of your mind <laughs> or, or just experience? The mantra? Yeah. I, I worked in that sucker. Um, you know, being a, being a, uh, a uh, you know I I I'm a, I go to an Episcopal church right now, but I went to a Baptist church for a while and learned to learn to preach in a Baptist church. So I know that you have to get your idea down to three, three points, right? One of the things as an author you have to think about to pull the curtain back to the publishing process. Um, one of the things as an author you have to think about is what makes me the person to write this book, and right. Right. what makes me the person to write this book is that I've lived it, that I was a mess. Like people think that I'm this great. Uh, contemplative, you know, technology, you know, person who's all like at peace or whatever, who can control himself with this amazing self-control. It's like, no, I was a mess. Like I was depressed and sad and anxious and Mm -hmm. I was really struggling and I had to really work at a lot of different things and and Mm. reconnect was a big part of this healing process was just learning about what was making me in part what was making me so miserable and yeah. and figuring out how to invest 
in my mental and spiritual health. And so I've, I've lived it. And so this, this mantra, your own, uh, prescription really. Right. Right. And so, yeah, like, so I, I, I really worked on like honing this mantra into as few words as possible so that it would be easy to remember. But when I thought about like, what are the things that I've, I basically sat down and I, I have my you know journal from that time. I just sat down and thought, what are the things that helped me reconnect? What, what would sum up my journey in this book? And I had about five things and I, you know, was able to kind of merge a couple of them together and, and got it down to three and then, you know, just kept chopping and rewriting the words until it was something a little bit shorter. That would be easier to remember. Mm-hmm. And your editor said, don't put that in there. It's too, it's, it's too much. It's too much of a golden nugget. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. I mean, she was, she was great. She was, she, she did a great job with this book. Uh, but it was a really funny email exchange because she said, this is just like, you're giving away too much of your book. And uh, what I, what I really felt like was, you know, I, I remember Michael Pollan's little mantra and that helps me make better decisions when I eat. And so I thought maybe that would help people make better decisions with technology. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for joining me again. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. 